Good morning. So happy to be with you all um, on this day before Memorial's, Memorial Day, the Lord's Day. Amen. Uh, it's an absolute blessing. Um, as your pastor just mentioned, I had an opportunity to meet uh, some of the leaders about a year ago, and it was a real blessing to see uh, and to be a part of a meeting uh, and to be able to even meet uh, a church that was uh, excited uh, not only about the gospel but about the implications of the gospel uh, in regards to what it calls us to uh, in concerns of uh, ethnic diversity uh, within the church. Um, and as Dave and I have had the opportunity to get to know one another, um, I love this brother because he is passionate first and foremost about the gospel. Um, I feel as if, you know, over a period of time, the culture and, and even in the church we've become uh, sometimes at, at some points more obsessed with diversity than we are with the gospel. And it's very important that if we're going to really do this and do this the right way, that we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? Amen. So as you continue your pursuits of uh, ethnic diversi diversity to reach all men, uh, remember that we're doing it uh, not because uh, we want to be like the world. We, we don't want diversity for the sake of diversity. It's because the gospel bids us to. It's because the gospel calls us to take the gospel, to take this good news of Jesus Christ to all men. Amen? Amen. Whether they're black, white, Asian, whatever, the gospel calls us to take it to everyone because the gospel is for everyone. Amen? Amen. Um, I have been assigned the task of uh, looking at Nehemiah chapter 13. And we will uh, look at most of that pas passage, but what we're going to focus on is verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to skip down to verses 14 through 31. Um, and I'm going to try to read those passages, that passage uh, to you on this morning, um, and I'll speed read for the sake of time. Nehemiah chapter 13. And if you're there, you'll find these words. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And then it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Skip down to verse 14. Remember me, O God, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also on the wine, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? And you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates 
of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares uh, lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons and take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me. Oh, my God, for good. This morning, I want to deal with the topic, living distinguished lives in an inclusive culture. Living distinguished lives in an inclusive culture. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray and ask that as this is read, Father, before I even speak, Father, that you would use it to pierce hearts that you would use it to, to break hearts and to form them to your likeness and to your image, Father. I pray and ask, Father, that as we gather this Lord's day, that you would bless us and that you would bless me as I preach your word, that it would not return void, Father, but that your people who know your voice would hear it. And, Father, where they see error, where they see sin in their lives, Father, that they would be ready and willing to repent. Father, humble all of us on this day. Father, I pray and ask, Father, that the gospel might be proclaimed, that that Jesus Christ might be glorified and magnified in this service on this morning. Father, that it would go forth and that it would do a mighty work in your people. I pray and ask blessings over grace that you would be with this church family, that you would be with their pastors, that you would be with their elders. 
and that you would continue to grow them in wisdom and knowledge and a better understanding of your word. Father, hide me behind the cross that your people might see you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Living distinguished lives in an inclusive culture. Yesterday, an article was published in the journal. This is a daily magazine uh, that comes out of West Virginia, and it was entitled, No Room for Hatred and Tolerance in the Gospel. The author uh, of this article, Craig T. Klein, recounts on how, uh, on May the 5th, uh, Hilda Dunham, and I assume she's an evangelical, uh, uses very hurtful language to describe gay men and lesbians. Ms. Dunham writes, Are they dangerous, mentally ill, destined for eternal hell? Yes, but we can only do what God says. The article goes on. She writes these things to reiterate her point that homosexuals are under God's judgment and that Christians should love, pray, pray for, and witness to them. So this was Mrs. Dunham's main point, that Christians should love, witness, and pray for homosexuals. Klein responds, I cannot accept Ms. Dunham's rhetoric as representative of the type of love Christ speaks of in the 22nd chapter of Matthew. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Mr. Klein goes on and says, So as Christians, as humans, what are we to do for our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers and neighbors? Love them. Accept them. Celebrate them as fellow travelers on the walk of life. He ends by saying this, The world may have plenty of room for religiously motivated bigotry and hatred but there is no room for it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Did you see what Mr. Klein did there? People like Mr. Klein aren't unique in the church. That this is a movement that's growing more and more inside of the evangelical church. That there's this movement for us to become more accepting, to become more inclusive, to become more loving. But the problem is, is that when we talk about love, we're not really talking about biblical love. No, we're, we're, we're taking the world's definition of love and we're taking it and we're twisting it and we're saying, hey, listen, Jesus says you're supposed to love God with all your mind, soul, and strength and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is we have two very different definitions of love. And out of love for God and out of love for my neighbor, the implications of what my love looks like looks very different from what your love looks like. I define my love based on what the Bible says. You define your love based on what the world says love is. If the, if the Bible tells us what's good and what's evil, then love bids us to turn people towards what's good and turn them away from what's evil, according to the word. We can't pick and choose. And like I said, men like Mr. Klein aren't unique in the church. That the church is being called always to be inclusive, 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 inclusive. 
Do what the world does. You don't have to look that different. You need to accept these things. If they become popular in the culture, you need to embrace them, or else the church will get left behind. But the reality is, is that many of the churches who have um, fallen victim to the world's and to the cultural's attacks, that they should give in to these things, many of these churches are the ones that are actually dying. That this is a problem within the church, that we are being pressured on all sides to conform and to become more inclusive. And I come here to tell you today that our passage is saying something very different than what the culture is telling us to do. I think the main point of this passage is this. Distinguish yourselves from unbelievers out of obedience to the Lord. And I think that last part of that point is very important. The reason why that last part is very important is because sometimes some Christians, we just want to distinguish ourselves. We just want to be different for the sake of being different. The world wears solid colors. Okay, we're going to wear stripes because we want to look different from the world. And that's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that means that the way that we view all of life has to change. Not just in the way that we dress. Not just in the type of clothes that we wear. We don't have to look weird for the sake of looking weird. But the Bible calls us to be different. And what does different look like? I think this passage helps us understand some of these things. If you look at the passage of Nehemiah, something, and you guys have been going through this book for the past several weeks, something very interesting is going on in this last chapter. In, in chapter 1 through 12, you see Nehemiah leave the king's house, and he goes into Jerusalem to rebuild a wall. And right in chapter 12, you see the dedication of the wall. And, and most of us would like for the book to have end at chapter 12, right? Because things are looking good, man. Reformation has taken place. Israel is like, God, we promise we won't do it again. We repent. We confess. We're all about you. But all of a sudden, something happens 12 years later is when Nehemiah returns. That all those promises that they had made, all that stuff that they said they would do, they're not following through. They're not following through. So there's, there's some debate among theologians where the 12 years in chapter 13 actually begins. Some would say that it begins at verse 4. Others would say it begins at verse 1. That's personally, that's irrelevant to our point here on this morning. Regardless, we know that there's a break between what Nehemiah um, saw before he left and what Nehemiah sees after he left. Now, personally, I think that verses 1 through 3, 1 through 3 are a part of should be a part of the last section. And I think the break actually does happen at verse 4. But let's look at our first point. That in this chapter, I think there's sort of three movements, three major movement, movements at least uh, in this passage. And number one, um, it deals with the assembly, who is allowed in and out of Israel. Number two, it deals with uh, the practices or the lifestyle of the people. It talks about how uh, they had broken the Sabbath and how they were adopting practices of the world. And number three talks about their relationships, specifically marriage, and how they were interacting and marrying pagans. Let's look at number one. I think our first point in this first movement in this passage in verses one through three calls us 
to distinguish our assemblies. In chapter 13, during Nehemiah's second visit to Jerusalem, the people of Israel read the book of Moses, and and they're reading specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6. Now, when you're reading passages like these, and um, one passage is quoted, another passage is always helpful to go back and see what that passage actually says. Um, not that they're misquoting it, but you're actually able to get that full passage in context to better help you understand what was actually taking place here in our current text. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, um, he says this. He says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beror, from Pator uh, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Two things are worth observing about this passage. All right, the public reading of the word exposed to problems among the Israelites. That, that it's important that we read our word. Matthew Henry comments on this section. He says, see the benefit of the public reading of the word. When it is duly attended to, it discovers to us sin and duty, good and evil, and shows us wherein we have erred. Then we profit by the discovery when by it we are wrought upon to separate our, ourselves from all that evil to which we have addicted ourselves. The people of Israel were ignorant of the law. Why? It seems that discipleship was no longer taking place among the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, they're commanded to teach the law diligently to their children. To, they shall, the, the, the passage says that they should talk to them when you sit in their house, and you should walk and when they walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So the first problem was ignorance, that they had been commanded early on, before chapter 23 and chapter chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, to teach your children, to know this law. It is very important that you know the things in which I have commanded commanded you. And all of a sudden now they're reading from the book of Moses and, and the passage says that no Ammonites or Moabites should be allowed in your assembly. And all the everybody's like, wow, I didn't know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that. They had not been reading their words. They had not been engaged in the study. The passage says that it was because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when they came out of Egypt. So they were the reason why the Ammonites and the Moabites were um, a bandit from Israel was not because of their skin color, was not because of their ethnicity, but simply because they were opposed to Israel. And God in his sovereignty knew that this would not change, that if they were allowed into the assembly one way or another, they would find a way to corrupt Israel and turn them to pagan gods. And he wasn't having it. This passage Some may object that this passage seems to point to a type of ethnic purity, since the passage reads that they separated from all those of foreign descent. But I I think Scripture clearly shows that this is not the case. 
that foreigners were allowed to join Israel by conversion, as shown in Ezra 6.21 and Ruth 1.16-17. Who was a Moabite? Ruth was a Moabite. Furthermore, this passage clearly shows that the reason why they were forbidden was due to their opposition. A full reading of Deuteronomy chapter 23 shows that Israel was, allowed, was, was not allowed to abhor the Edomite or the Egyptian. The Edomite, because this person, the Edomites, I'm sorry, because they were brothers, and the Egyptian, because they were sojourners in Egypt's land. And these were individuals who were foreigners, who were not a part of Israel. So verses 1 through 3, I think I have much to say to the church today. Let's look at two things. It shows us the importance of private and public reading of God's word. Chrysostom says this. He says, the source of all troubles is in not knowing the scriptures. Amen? The source of all troubles is in not knowing the scriptures. How true was the statement for Israel and even truer for us today? That knowing the scriptures is extremely important. That in it, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel is revealed to all of mankind. That in it, we find out things about God. How would you know anything about God? That people who always want to put their Bibles to the side in order to figure out things, it's very important that we are students of our word. That the Bible, that the scripture must be the lenses through which we view all of life. How many times are you reading through the word and, and it's exposing new sins in your heart? This is important that we take Bible reading, that we take Bible mem- memorization, that we take these things seriously. Because these are, these, this is the weapon, this is the sword that God has used, that has given us to fight evil. Not out there, but in our own hearts. That people are very concerned with the evil that's out there in the world. And, and listen, I think that I'm, I'm one of the first ones that think that the church needs to be aware of um, the deception of this sort of homosexual movement towards the church. Yes, amen, please be aware of it. Know what's going on. But please don't think that for one second they're the main problem or that they're your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is you. Your biggest problem is in your own heart. And the only way that we will know what it is that God commands of us, that what it is that God calls of us, is if we are reading and if we are studying our words. You have to be Bible people. You have to be Bible people. It is not enough for us to come to church on Sunday and, 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 and hear the word being preached and then go out and not pick up our Bibles for the rest of the week. This is not enough. Why? So that you can be discerning. So you can be wise. It'll change your marriages. It'll impact the way you raise your children. It'll impact the way you educate your children. We need to know the scriptures. That in it, the God of the universe has spoken to us. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever just stopped and pondered the fact that the God of the universe has revealed himself to you? He says, listen, I tell you all about myself, and I even tell you a little about you. In my word. You want to understand the twisted and the wicked heart of mankind? Read the word. It shows you how we are fickle, how we are prone to stray. But God 
who is rich in mercy, has given us a way to have a relationship with him. And it's only through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Amen. Number two, this passage teaches us who we, sorry, this passage teaches us who we are to enter into covenant relationship with. I think this is very important in the church today because, again, we're being forced. Be inclusive, be inclusive, be inclusive, be inclusive. Let everybody in. And that the reality is, is that the Bible is a book that actually discriminates. That's a very unpopular word in our culture, but it does. But there are very strict guidelines uh, regarding who is allowed into, into the church. Not inside the public worship, but I actually mean inside the covenant relationship in the body. That, those, that the church is for those who have repented of their sins. That the church is for those uh, who confess that Jesus is Lord over the universe. The church is for those who are compelled to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. The church is for those who confess that Jesus is Lord over their lives and they're willing to give up everything to follow him. The church is for those people. And if that is you, the church is for you. That the church invites you to come into covenant relationship with us so that we may grow together, so that we may hold one accountable. But if that is not you, I'm sorry, we're not discriminating against you. Based on your skin, based on your ethnicity, based on anything like that, we are simply following and obeying what the word bids us to do. And that quite frankly, you don't want to be around us anyways. But the church is for believers who follow the Almighty God. We don't want to try to be diverse and inclusive and at the same time compromise in what the text actually teaches us. Number two, I think this text is calling us to distinguish our lifestyles. In verses 15 through 22, we find the record of the people of Israel violating the Sabbath. Now, the passage says that they were treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves, and which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah confronts the nobles of Judah, pointing out their iniquity, reminding them what happened to their fathers when they did the same thing and warning them that they were bringing the wrath of God upon themselves by profaning the Sabbath. The law concerning the Sabbath is extremely clear, and it, can't be argue, it can be argued that it's the most gracious of the Ten Commandments. God is saying, rest. What type of idiot do you have to be to rebel against that? <laughs> A sinful one. That, that, that our, our rebellion against the Sabbath day, uh, especially within Israel's time, shows that the heart of man is wicked. We, we don't rebel against God's commandments because they're burdensome. We rebel against them because we're evil and our hearts need to be transformed. That God says, hey, it is good for you to take some time off. It is good for you to rest and set aside the day to worship me. And what did they do? No, we want to work. Israel's disobedience to the Sabbath should reveal to us how wicked our heart is. Israel had grown impatient with the Sabbath law. Amos 8.5 reveals this impatience with the merchants annoyed at the weekly shutdown of business. And by Jeremiah's time, that they were completely ignoring the Sabbath. That it had become to them sort of a strange thing. That they didn't do it anymore. It was irrelevant. Perhaps Israel 
had been influenced by the culture, and now something that was clearly forbidden by God was all of a sudden now embraced by the entire nation. Nehemiah didn't simply stand by and watch it happen. Notice what Nehemiah did. He went against something that was widely accepted in the culture. Regardless of your views on the Christian and the Sabbath, you know, you, you know, whatever you think, I think there are some warnings here for Christians today. Israel was given a law, and they violated it so much so that it became normal to do so in their day. There was little different from them and the surrounding nations, but they were no longer distinguished people. They began to look like the nations. What does that say about the church today? But I think this point of distinguishing our lifestyles, again, the way that we live, the way that we practice, the, the things that we do, they should be different from the world. And, it, and this is something that I've come, come to realize about Christians, is whether we realize it or not, we want to be liked by the world. Furthermore, we want the world to approve of the things that we do. This is why all of a sudden when something in the media blows up and, 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 and the media has this sort of uh, uh, outrage about what is going on and, and, you know, and, and, and all the secular people are you know, saying that they're promoting what's good and, and, and all of this, and all of a sudden the Christian church, we're kind of running behind, oh, yeah, 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 we're with you too. Like, yeah, this is evil, and, and we're not discerning in the process. We don't take time to actually see what's going on and to see whether this is something that the Bible actually speaks to. And if it does, what does the Bible actually have to say about it? What do we do? Because we want to be liked by the world, because we want to be approved of by the world, because we want the world to say, and this is what we're really after. Those Christian people, there sure are some good people. That's what we want the world to say about us. And we forget that their definition of good and evil is very different from our definition of good and evil. That they, re they reject our ethics. They reject what we consider beautiful and good and righteous in many cases. Yet, we're searching and we're begging for their approval. Hey, listen, I want you to know that the way that you do so many things should look different from the world. And again, we've already established, I'm not talking about looking different just for the sake of looking different. But the way you educate your children should be different from the world. The way you raise them should be different. The way you, the way you marry, the way you love your wife, husbands, it should look different than what the world does. Wives, the way you submit to your husband, it should look different. These are the things that the Bible is calling us to do. And I know in our day and time, this word submission, I'm sorry, don't take me out after service, but it's a biblical word. And we need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say that this means? And I know there have been overreactions to that in the church, both sides. But we need to be Bible-believing people. And if the Bible calls us to submit, we don't need to be shy of that word just because the world doesn't like it. We need to say, what is the Bible actually talking about here? Lastly, as we close, distinguish our relationships. You know, the Jews, according to Nehemiah, were marrying foreign women. Again, why was this a problem? Well, there's two issues here. Number one, the children weren't being taught the Hebrew tongue. Now, on you know, quick reading of that, you may say, okay, what's the big deal with them not being taught 
the Hebrew tongue. Well, if they can't speak the Hebrew tongue and read the Hebrew language, then that probably means that they're not reading the book of the law, the book of Moses, which is written in Hebrew. And Nehemiah saw this, and he was outraged. He was ticked off because he knew the implications of this. He realized that this means that you're not discipling your children, that when the word is being read, your children can't understand it. Your children are being taught pagan tongues. They don't have access to the word. And Nehemiah knew this was dangerous. And he knew that it was only a matter of time that one generation completely undid all the work that had been done prior to them. Why? Because if you get one generation that can't speak the Hebrew tongue and doesn't have access to the book of Moses, all of a sudden you have people who are completely godless because they have no instruction, because we've just established how important it is for us to be able to read our Bibles and to read our words, and if they can't understand it, that means that they're going to be ignorant of it. And if they're ignorant of it, that means that they're not going to be obedient to the Lord. And Moses saw this as a problem. Number two, again, this wasn't due to these women being of a different ethnicity. Israel was sinning on account of such women. The passage is very clear here. But it was because sinning on account of such women. Deuteronomy 7, chapter 7, verse 3 through 4, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Racists love to stop right there. We're just going to stop right there. We ain't got nothing else to say. No, that, that, there's something else that comes after that. For, for, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. He would destroy you quickly. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses, a Jew, for marrying a Cushite woman. At the end of that passage, God calls Moses faithful. But do we know what happens to Miriam? She is struck. She is strucken. She is struck. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> I, my, my wife, I didn't even look at my wife because I knew she was going to get me. She was struck with leprosy. She was struck with leprosy and rebuked for calling into question the man of God that he had appointed. Now, I would imagine that if, if intermarriage or interracial marriage was such a bad thing, I don't think that God would have appointed a sinner like Moses to lead his people if he, was, if he had married a woman and if this was such an evil thing in the sight of God. No. The problem was is that people were marrying pagan women, and these women and, and these men and their lust, lustful passions were following these women into pagan idolatry. This is the problem. And this has simple implications for the church today, and we know what they are. You are to only marry in the Lord. She or he can be black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever your preference may be. Have at it. But he or she better be in the Lord. This is the command that the Lord gives us. This is important because it has profound implications, again, on, on the rest of our lives. That if we marry outside of the Lord, outside of the church, how are you going to have a, any type of peaceful life? That your marriage is already divided from the beginning because you're moving towards Jesus and they're moving towards the world. I can't tell you how many couples I've met who are not on the same page when it comes to God and when it comes to the Christian faith. And, and, and there is so, so much type of verbal abuse 
that they want to raise their kids this way and the other person wants to raise their kids that way. And there's no support in the marriage on how to, on trying to disciple these children and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's chaos. It's painful. Listen, I don't, matter, I don't care how, how cute she is, man. <laughs> Proverbs told you, face away. It ain't going to look so good in 15 and 20 years. Especially if it ain't walking in godliness. Ladies, I don't care how much swag he has or, you know, how good, he can, how, how, how good his hair is or how cool he seems in the moment. When you're looking for a man to lead you and to love you as Christ loved the church, he ain't going to be able to do it if he doesn't know Jesus. I struggle loving my wife. I struggle being a good husband. I know that the struggle is real. I know that sin is always calling us away from God. Imagine a guy where there is no struggle taking place. The abuse that will take place. And he may not put his hands on you, but the verbal abuse, the passiveness, the lack of support, the lack of encouragement. This is someone that you're going to lock arms with for the rest of your natural born life. This is the person you're making a commitment to. You will be well off if you do it in the Lord. It is good that the Bible commands us not to be unequally yoked. It's not burdensome. It's for our good. In closing, you know, the way that this book ends, again, is, is very interesting. And it's not just sort of fairy tale happy ending. Because what, what, Mo, what Nehemiah seems to be communicating, you know, in this passage you see this uh, repetition of remember me, remember me, remember me. And, you know, on a quick reading, you're just like, this Nehemiah guy, like, oh, my goodness, remember me, remember me, remember me. It seems sort of vain, right? It seems like he wants to be the guy known as the hero who comes in and fixes Israel. Well, if that was the case, he wouldn't have wrote chapter 13. Because what is revealed in Nehemiah is that he is simply a foreshadow of the one that, that, that is to come. That Nehemiah, in all of his righteousness, and all of his attempts to reform Israel, he could not do it. That the heart of men were bent towards evil. They were sinful. They were wicked. And they needed someone greater than Nehemiah. This book ends on a sad note. Why? Because it's pointing us to a savior. It's pointing us to someone who will come and true reformation will happen. And that when he comes, he will defeat sin and death. And he will restore the relationship of sinful man back to holy God that he will soak up the wrath of God like a sponge that the people, that the Israelites, that you and I deserve. And instead of us being pushed away from God and cast into eternal damnation, Jesus takes that upon himself and gives us the perfect life that he deserves, the reward for living the perfect life that only he deserves. This is the good news of the gospel, that this book ends on a sad note because it wants to remind us that a better day is coming, that it wants to remind its readers that your hope is not in Nehemiah. Your hope is not in the Old Testament prophets, but there is a greater prophet that is coming, and his name is Jesus. What does that mean for us today? 
that as we struggle with sin in our own hearts and as we watch uh, America go move further and further away from any type of religious principles, what we need to realize that this earth is not our home. And even we, though we know that the Son of God has come and has died for our sins, we also know that he will return again. And we look for it with hope. Because no matter how you vote, you can be, you know, hardcore conservative. You can get your, you know, be all involved in politics and get your sticks and, and protest and all of those things. You can do it till your mouth is dry. But the reality is, is that this world is not going to be redeemed. It's not going to be restored until Jesus comes. And I'm not calling you to be passive in those things. I think you need to be aware. I think you need to have a Christian worldview as you engage in politics. But please don't put your hopes in it. Your hope is in Christ. And knowing that he's coming pushes you and motivates you to spread the gospel and to share this good news with others and to raise your children in fear and admonition of the Lord and to love your husbands and to love your wives as Christ has loved the church and patiently await the return of our King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray and ask that as your word went out, that it was heard and that it was received by your people. I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds. Father, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. Father, that we would cling to the good news of the gospel and that we would live in light of its implications. The Holy God should have destroyed sinful man, but instead he shows us mercy and sent a Savior. And I pray that we would be diligent in spreading this good news and living in light of it. That we're no longer dead to sin. We're alive in Christ. Help us to do this. By your spirit. Many of us are struggling here with various types of sin. But Father, I pray and ask. That you would bring healing. That you would bring comfort. That you would not leave us as orphans, Father, but that you would rescue us from our transgressions. Marriages may be struggling, Father, but I pray and ask that, Father, you would remind them of the love of Christ. Children may be tempted to go wayward, Father, but I pray and ask that you would give them parents that are patient. And that long to show them the love of the Father. Help us. In Christ's name. Amen.